Well, thank you for being here this morning. We're in our series on the Torah. The Torah, the Bible that Jesus read, not only Jesus, but all of the disciples who were Jewish, the writers of the New Testament, all of them with the exception of Luke, were all Jews. So this is what they all would have studied. This is the Bible they would have read. Now, when Jews, Orthodox Jews, typically say Torah, they, which means instruction, they're speaking of the Bible, in a, the Old Testament in a whole itself. Uh, but usually when we speak in our purposes right here, we're talking primarily about the first five books, the Pentateuch. And we have already looked at the book of Genesis the first couple of weeks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man. Uh, God uh, also uh, appointed and called Abraham to be the father of a nation which would be known as Israel, would be his chosen people, which would be a light to all the world. And through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, they have uh, sons. And eventually, uh, through Jacob, he has a, a son. He has several sons. He's 12, but he has one named Joseph, whom God would use uh, to prepare uh, the people of Canaan at that time and that tribe. Uh, to have a place to go during the famine, even though his brothers had done this uh, with not good intentions, God uses Joseph to rise to the top of the Egyptian economy and basically becomes what we'd, be call, we'd call today the vice president of Egypt. And while he's there, he, uh, he dies, of course, and the Bible says that a new people or a new leader, a new dynasty, a new authority came into power during that time, and they did not know Joseph, and soon they make them slaves. Now, from the time that Joseph got there to the time the children are delivered, the Bible tells us it's 430 years, but we don't know exactly how long they suffered as slaves, but we can say probably uh, well over the 300-year range, probably somewhere in that time zone. We're not sure exactly how long. But while they're suffering there, they begin to call out to God and they begin to pray. And God hears their prayers and he, he, he raises up a deliverer named Moses. Moses, of course, had grown up in the Egyptian economy. He had been taken care of very well because he had been adopted as a child. Uh, but then he kills a man and he's forced to flee and he's been living in the wilderness. And wise in the wilderness, God calls him to be that deliverer. And he calls him through a burning bush. And he reveals himself to him. He said, I am the God of Abraham that your fathers have, have worshipped. But he, when he asked them, then tell me who you are to tell the people. Who do I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am. We just sang that song, The Great I Am. That's taken directly from Exodus chapter 3. I am, that name means all-consuming, the powerful, and the, the, the true and only sovereign God. It's a name that we can't and a word that we can't really translate properly into English. But it means the almighty God. It's probably a good way for us to understand it today, the great I am. So he's revealed himself. And now we find ourselves uh, at what the Jews call Pesach, which is Passover. 
And the lamb is very important, just like the lamb is very important in the book of Leviticus. It's also very important now at Pesach, at Passover. And today I want to talk to you a little bit about Passover. You know, you might ask this question. Now, why would you do it that way? Why would you have a Passover meal? What's the purpose of that? And why do we do communion today? What's the purpose of it? Well, you know, if you have children and you want to teach them something, something that they would remember for the rest of their lives, something that they would pass down to their children and their children's children, and that it would go on continually, how would you teach them a message like that? How would you teach them a lesson like that? You know, January 1st, a few of you were here on January 1st when we had a service, and a guy named Marquise who quoted the, who can quote the entire book of Genesis as well as six other books of the Bible, he, he quoted uh, the first 22 chapters of Genesis. And I was talking to him after the service. I said, so what's the biggest secret you've learned about memorization? He said, I've learned that just like they did in the Old Testament times, if you can put uh, touch something that you can feel, something that you can see, something that you can taste, something that you can hear, something that you can visualize, he said, then your capacity to memorize is far greater. He said, so that's what I've, do. I've done. I've tried to employ all my senses in memorization. And I believe that might have been what God was doing when he instituted Passover. It is a time and it is, so to speak, a uh, project or a ceremony that we go through that the Jews have been going through for 3,500 years, and yet it still remains. And we'll see in the Word of God that he wanted it to be that way, and it's rich with meaning. I want you to remember the word that we've talked about before called foreshadowing. What does foreshadowing mean? It means an image or a shadow of what yet is to come in fulfillment. A picture, a shadow of what is yet to come in fulfillment. And so as we look at uh, Exodus chapter 12, as we look at the Seder meal this morning, I think it'll, if you will look at it with those lens, looking for Jesus, looking at that which is to come, you can see it all the way back 3,500 years before. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. And this is before the 10th plague. The nine plagues have already come. The plagues of judgment have already come upon the Egyptians. And now they're preparing. And this is the preparation that is being transpiring before the 10th plague has come. This is the night before. And Jesus, excuse me, and God is giving them these instructions. If you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, beginning with the first verse. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, some scholars will point back that Jesus came uh, for, we, it's hard to discern exactly when, but it appears four to five days before Passover. When were the lambs being prepared? They were to be taken into the home. And they were to be prepared uh, on the 10th day. And we'll see in just a moment on the 14th day is when they would prepare, they would prepare it for Passover. Tell all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, 
then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. Continuing, according to, to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be, and notice what it says, think about the foreshadowing of class. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the what? The 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, when is twilight? It's between 3 and 5 p.m. Josephus lets us know that Jesus was killed in that time range at twilight. Think about the foreshadowing, uh, what will happen 1,500 years from this point that this is being written when this is occurring. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So they take the blood and they put it on the post, on the doorpost, on the front, on the top, and on the side. Think about the foreshadowing of what is transpiring here 1,500 years beforehand. And you shall eat it in haste. The Bible says, and you shall, excuse me, do not eat any, where, where are we, by the way? <laughs> Verse 8, and they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner part, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In other words, you're going to eat the lamb, eat all that there is, and anything that's left, you're going to burn. It's going to be completely consumed. The Bible continues, and he says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So, uh, you know what? Pharaoh has hardened his heart multiple times. I want you to be ready to go. You're going to be standing. You're going to eat it. And think about when we'll, we'll do communion at the end of this, this service. Uh, for a sacrifice to really be a sacrifice at this time, the lamb had to be eaten. It had to be taken. So it's not just offered, it's also eaten. It continues here. And it says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, on all the gods of Egypt. We talked about that last week. It's a judgment that's being sent. Each of the plagues are a judgment upon the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pesa. I will pass over. That same picture today, before God Almighty, the blood of Christ is applied to believers' hearts. We are passed over, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But those whom have trusted Christ are passed over. The Bible continues here, and it says, that's the sign of the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you what? A memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Now, this is known as the Mosaic Covenant. And this is the covenant that they are keeping before the Lord. 
Now, I think that if you have been a believer very long, if you study the New Testament, I think that is so rich with meaning and purpose and symbolism as we read that, that which occurred 3,500 years ago. Now, today I have for you, and we've, we've done this once before where I've, I've used this illustration, but we have a Seder table. Uh, this is uh, what Jews, as a matter of fact, Messianic Jews, uh, which... Uh, we have a few uh, in our congregation even today, people who uh, still observe Passover but see Christ in the Seder. The word Seder uh, simply means order, just like when you say kosher, it means proper. Now, I want us to look at a few things. First of all, uh, on this table, we see several things. Uh, this is the Haggadah, and this is a book that would be on the table that kind of gives instructions on how to go through the Seder. It has stories. It has Four questions. It, it, it tells what each thing on the plate means. And uh, this is several hours if you did it correctly. It's not going to take you that long today. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. Uh, but that's one of the items on there. And then another thing that you would see here at the Seder table, uh, the mother of the house, the woman would come and she would light to start the, the, the time off what we call the festival candles. And the reason, and again, as Christians... I'm reading Christ into this. We've talked about the foreshadowing. As Christians, I would look at that and I would say, is that interesting? Because Christ, the Savior of the world, came through a woman, came through Mary. The Bible tells us in um, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mary, uh, God God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, comes through the woman here to the earth to save the world from our sins. So the festival candles have been lit. And then you begin, and I mentioned there are four questions that are asked, and there's also four cups. These four cups, some traditions will just use one cup and they'll drink from it four times. Others will drink from uh, all four cups, and each cup has its symbolic meaning. Now, the first cup is called the cup of sanctification, the cup of sanctification. And when we think about sanctification, of course, and this, I'll get to this cup later, um, we think of the cup of sanctification, uh, it's called kiddush in the Hebrew, and uh, it is it is the picture of how um, the Israelites went through this process and how God sanctified them and set them apart and made them a holy people prepared to be used by him. Now that brings us to the Seder plate. This is a Seder plate right here. And um, some traditions use uh, different things on them, to be honest with you. Uh, different sects of Judaism, different Messianic Jews sometimes use different sects, but I'm, I'm going to give you the main ones. Um, first of all, uh, they start off with the greens here, and the greens is symbolic of life. And as they look back at Egypt, and they look back at their forefathers, they look back at the life, the life that they were given. And uh, this green representing life is dipped into the salt water two times. This is a bowl of salt water right here. You can't see it, but that's what it is. And the reason they do that, and then they eat it, number one, it signifies the tears that were shed while they were in Egyptian slavery. And number two, it's a picture of the salt water of the Red Sea 
that they were delivered through uh, when the Egyptians were following them and they were delivered from the Egyptian hand. So you have the greens. The second one uh, is uh, horseradish. It's the bitter herbs. And they would dip this and they'd get a big bite of it. And then, but I'm not Jewish. (laughs) I'm not going to eat it. And they take a big bite of that, and you can't eat that much horseradish without crying. I mean, it's going to put tears in your eyes. And it's a picture of the bitter suffering and toil that they were forced to experience during their time in slavery. But then right after that, there's something called the haraset. And the haraset is a delicious uh, ornament of apples and sugar and raisins. And they would take probably a couple bites of this. I'll eat a little lap. And, um, and this is meant to be, matter of fact, it's the word for mortar. Mortar, which we get our word for bricks, uh, that, or that we use for bricks even today. And you might say, why do we, by the way, that's not part of it. Uh, but... Why, do, why would they have the word mortar? Why would they have that there? Well, the rabbi would say, even in our toil, we had been promised. We understood we'd been promised the redemption of Christ. The hope of God would deliver us, that God would deliver us soon. And so as they start this, they, they have the hope and the peace that redemption is coming, that salvation is coming, which next would lead us to um, the... Uh, Hagim, or the the egg here, then, by the way, this was not used uh, by the Jews uh, at that time. It would not have been on the table. This is something that developed later. And, uh, matter of fact, it's called the bitza, the bitza. And the bitza now is a typically a brown roasted egg. Now, what it was before was what? A lamb. They would eat a lamb, but they no longer eat a lamb at Passover. And the reason they no longer eat a lamb at Passover, as Jesus predicted in the Gospels, that there was going to be a day when the temple would be destroyed and there wouldn't be one stone left unturned. And this, of course, happens in 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, comes through and he demolishes not only the city of Jerusalem, but also the temple. And from that point forward, the Jews were not able to take a lamb and offer it as a sacrifice because there was no temple. They couldn't take it to the priest. They couldn't have it certified. They couldn't have it offered on the altar because it no longer existed. So this development of the roasted egg that's browned and roasted was a picture. It's a memorial. It's a picture of what was, a picture of the lamb. And they take it and they eat of it now because they anticipate one day that there will be a Messiah and that the temple will be reinstituted. But at this point, that's not the case. So they simply use the bitza as a picture of the lamb. Uh, they also would, the, the rabbi would also probably dip it or the leader would also dip it in salt water probably as well. And then it brings us to our last one. This is a shank bone of a lamb right here, uh, the shank bone, and they don't eat that. But again, it's a reminder of how the lambs, as we looked earlier in the passage, it's called the Zoroah. It, it is a picture of how the lambs would come and how they would prepare for the sacrifice of the lambs and how they would all come into the city. And now uh, that no longer is true. That no, no longer exists. And so this is a memory of what has transpired 
and what has occurred. Well, then we look at the second cup. The second cup, and this cup is, has a couple different names. Some call it the cup of judgment or simply the cup of plagues. And what they would do is they would take their finger and they would begin to dip it one drop for each plague. They'd go through all the plagues and dip it on the plate. And it's a picture of the judgment of God upon the nation of Egypt. And only, those, uh, only the Jews, only the children of Israel uh, were spared uh, the plagues. And on the 10th one, they were only spared if they had the blood applied to the doorpost of their home. And uh, then we find ourselves uh, looking at something else here. Um, this is called a, a matzotash, and there's one other element in here. It's the matzah, and this is what we use at communion here at Rock Point. And um, you, uh, matter of fact, let me get a, get a bigger one here. This is an interesting piece, and again, um, Jews would not necessarily see this like we see it, and we're reading some symbolism in here. But if you went and studied Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5, the Bible tells us what? It says, he was wounded or he was pierced for our transgressions, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, this is unleavened bread. And in the Bible, when you see the word leaven, that is often a metaphor. Uh, it's yeast. It's a metaphor for sin. Jesus uses that metaphor. Paul uses that metaphor. And so this is unleavened. This is one without yeast. It's what God commanded them to use. But it's interesting. There are little holes all poked in here. And there are holes that are poured. He was pierced for our transgressions. And by, our, by his stripes, there are stripes on here because of the way it's roasted, we are healed. Now, again, uh, a traditional Jew is not going to look at that and think those things by any means. But I think it's amazing that they've been using this for 3,500 years, and you can see that symbolism, that foreshadowing, as you look at the matzah, if you care to see it. So, at this point, uh, there's something called the afikomen, and it means that which comes after. And um, earlier, uh, during the time... um, You've got, they pull this out, this off Coleman, they pull it out, and there's a piece, and I'm not going to be able to get to it here. Let's see here. There are three compartments to this, to the matzatash is what it's called. There's a compartment here, a compartment here, and a compartment here. There's three. And when the, ask the rabbi, why are there three compartments in the matzatash? Well, some say it's for the patriarchs, for Abraham, for Isaac, and for Jacob. Still other rabbis might see, well, it represents uh, the priest, the Levites, and the people. But as Christians, we might look at this and think, you know, it also uh, fits nicely with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And there's only one compartment that has the, the bread in it. Guess which one that is? The middle one. The other two are empty. You might ask the rabbis, why are they empty? And go, we don't know. Well, sure makes sense if you're a Christian in the foreshadowing in the middle, Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And out of it, the uh, afkoman is taken and is hidden somewhere. It is actually placed, uh, let's break off a smaller piece here. It's actually placed within a linen cloth is wrapped up, and it's hidden, and the children go to find it later. 
and it's set aside somewhere else, usually in another room, sometimes in the same room, but it's hidden somewhere. And they are to go and find it. And when they go and find it, they bring it back. But I want you to think about this for just a second. It's been in the bag, in the middle one, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. It is a piece that has been broken. It has holes. It's been pierced. It has stripes. It's wrapped in a linen cloth. It's taken away and hidden, buried, if you will. And then later, they bring it back. After someone finds they bring it back. And then it is broken into small pieces and given to everyone at the table. Remember the word foreshadowing? It's amazing if you stop and think. Is that coincidence? I think not. We continue. And the next cup, the third cup, is the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption. It's interesting because uh, most scholars think in um, Luke chapter, which we'll read here in just a moment, Luke chapter uh, 22, that this is probably the cup that Jesus was referring to when he said, it's with great desire that I've longed to have this Passover with you. And he says to them, he goes, I give you a new covenant. Now that would have been shocking. Because the only other place that we see that terminology used is in Jeremiah 31, 31. In Jeremiah 31, 31, the Bible says, God says, behold, I will give you a new covenant. Matter of fact, you go on and read 33 and 32 and 33. He says, not a covenant that's written on stone, but one that's written on your heart. And now Jesus is here saying at the cup of redemption, behold, I give you a new covenant. That would have been pretty shocking for the disciples to hear at that time. Think about it today. Think about it 2,000 years later as we consider it. And the Bible tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, uh, Paul says that, behold, Jesus is our Passover lamb. So if that's true, that gives richness and meaning to what we're doing here as well as when we take communion. But there is another cup. It's called the cup of Hallel. It's the cup of praise. Hallel, that word we get hallelujah from means our, our translation we would use would be the cup of praise. And it's a very interesting passage. Matter of fact, Jesus certainly would have used it. They said they would sing a hymn. And the whole Hillel goes from uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. But there's a very special part, I think, for us, and a very special part, kind of one of the climaxes of, of the Hillel. If you go to um, Psalm 118, beginning with the 20th verse, let, let's look at that. Psalm 18, 118, 118, beginning with the 20th verse. And beginning with the 20th verse, it says, This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I think, and remember, they would have been singing this. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone, Yahshua, by the way, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now catch that verse right there, 22, because sometimes we sing this song. Jesus is, corner, Jesus is our cornerstone, uh, weak, made strong, and the Savior's love. The stone that the builders rejected, remember that Christ came, was rejected by his own, was rejected by 
the public, by the, the religious authorities of that day and has become the cornerstone. Again, this is hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ would come. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. Hosanna is the word right there. We pray, O Lord. This is what they sang as he came in on Palm Sunday. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Baruch Abba. Hashim Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's amazing. The cup of Hillel. Now, there's one other cup that some use at the Seder. Some don't. But those who do, they have a place setting for Elijah. Elijah the prophet, the great prophet. And this cup is filled with wine, but it's never drank from it. It's funny. I have a, a friend of mine who is, who is Jewish who was here, one of my neighbors that was here at the last service. And he said, well, actually, we, I, I do drink from it while the kids aren't looking. And then I go, look, Elijah came. I didn't, I didn't know that some did it that way. Uh, but he said that's the way that he does it. And so, but typically, a, a lot of homes, they wouldn't, they wouldn't partake of it. And it was just kind of symbolic that one day Elijah will come. And when Elijah comes, he will be the one who ushers in the Messiah. So there's a, a place where they would stop and they would look out the door. Someone would open the door and see if Elijah was there with the anticipation that one day Elijah will come. And then, of course, Elisha will usher in the, the spirit or the literal Messiah. Now, I, I want to read a passage to you because I just think it's incredibly powerful in speaking of foreshadowing. Now, what is the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. The last chapter and the last two verses of the book of Malachi. If you have a Bible, you might want to mark this. It's the very end before we get to the New Testament. It's the last chapter, the last verse of Malachi. Matter of fact, we're going to look at the last two. And it's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, right before Matthew. And this is the end. This is how the Old Testament in the order that we currently have, this is how it ends. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the father lest I come strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let me read five one more time. Behold, I will send you Elijah. That's where this cup comes from. And the prophet, before the great and awesome day, the Lord comes. And he says, now we'll turn the hearts of the fathers and their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Okay. Now I'd like for you to go to the gospel of Luke, chapter one, the beginning of the gospel of Luke, right there at the beginning. Luke chapter 1, let's look at the 13th verse, starting with Luke chapter 1, verse 13. And this is Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest within the temple, and he will be the father of John. And he's just been given this announcement through the power, through the voice of God that, Zechariah, you are going to have a son. And let's read and see what it says. Remembering Malachi chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. But the angel said to him, to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary. That's who Mary goes to visit, Elizabeth. Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yochanah, John. 
And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We know the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of Elizabeth, even from his mother's womb. And he will what? Remember Malachi 4 and 5? And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow. You see that thread, that foreshadowing theme, a God of order. Seder means order. A God who is kosher. God, kosher means proper. A God who does not do things by coincidence, but by purpose. I don't know about you, but that just brings chills to my body when I think about that, when I read that, when I look at that. Later on in the Gospel of John, we're talking about Jokana uh, is referred to again, John chapter 1, verse 29, when he sees Jesus coming, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Pesah, the Lamb of God who will take away our sins.